I'd like to begin uh, by painting a picture, if it's okay. I want you guys to imagine with me that kid in your high school who uh, was kind of cool, but was a loner. Someone who, um, maybe they're that darker romantic who has a tendency to stick to themselves and they don't throw a football as much as they do read books and they kind of isolate themselves and stay off to uh, themselves in the cafeteria. Uh, maybe today we'd quantify them in the nerd category a little bit, you know, um, but nonetheless, someone who is less likely to follow the crowd, someone who's following their own path, if you will, okay, that guy. And he's not really um, pursued or well-liked. In fact, most people try to ignore him, and he has a tendency to uh, stay in shadows. In shadows, he finds himself completely enamored and infatuated with the girl that is the apple of every guy's eye. She is the captain of the cheerleading team, and she is the one who's dated all the quarterbacks. She's the one who's had a tendency and unfortunately has been taken advantage of a little bit by those guys because they've left her a little bit emotionally abused. Because every time, no matter who the guy was, they saw her as an opportunity, and on their arm, it meant more about them. See, they liked her for what what having her on their arm meant about them. It was less about loving her and more about their own status and the trophy that she was. One day, that guy in the shadows has a tendency to um, lurk and maybe, maybe stalk a little bit. But one night, as he's thinking on her and his mind is flooded with all the emotion that comes when he thinks of her, he, has a, he can't help it any longer. He has to sit down and put pen to paper, and he lets every romantic, every intimate thought come pouring out in the most eloquent of fashion that he can possibly muster onto a page. And he writes this letter and puts it in an envelope, and the next day, when no one's looking, he slips it into her locker. He waits to see her make it to her locker. He's watching from the shadows, and he, he notices her notice the letter, and then that gives him the strength to later find her when no one else is around, and he comes to her and he says, hey, I, I wanted to know if you got to read my letter. You see, I spent a lot of time last night kind of pouring over it and letting you know every single thing that I think about you, and I wanted you to know who I am because not many people know who I am. I wanted you to know who I am, and I wanted you to know just how much I think of you. And she turns and says, no, actually, I've been really busy. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I, you know, maybe soon I'll get to it. Thanks. And so he comes back a couple days later and comes to her and he says, hey, I'm just curious. Have you gotten to my letter? And she says, uh, she says no, 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 I've been slammed. I've been so busy. I'm sorry. It's at home. It's on my nightstand. I promise I'll, I'll get to it. A month goes by and uh, he's almost afraid to ask at this point. But he musters up the strength and he goes to her and no one else is looking. He says, hey, you know that letter that I wrote you, the one where I methodically, intentionally told you who I am and who you are to me? Did you get to read my letter? She says, yes, yes, I actually did. I actually got to get to your letter. And uh, I, I sat with it just last night, actually. And he goes, okay, what did you think? Honestly, it did nothing for me and I got nothing out of it. as the air goes out of that young man. You see, 
we here have it. We, we've been talking through our core values, and at this time in every service, we take a moment to stop, pause, and we open God's love letter to us. And he sees us like the girl that is the apple of the eye of the guy who's in the shadows, that no one has a tendency to turn and notice, that we've never pursued, but he's always been pursuing us. We take the moment to open the scriptures and find who he is and just how much he's loved us and had a plan to redeem us and bring us to himself. And so today I got to tell you that I hope that we'll open our minds a little bit, open our hearts a little bit to the lover of our soul. Instead of just telling him I got nothing out of it or telling him one more time with a stiff arm that I, I, I was just too busy, I was just too slammed, I was just too consumed with my own world, we would turn and receive the one who loves us more than anyone else. Because here at the, at the fellowship, as we walk through these core values, we are biblically centered, we talked about that. And that's why we give time to this every week, that we would turn through it and we find exactly what he wants to say to us as people those that he loves. And we have found that we are plural because of it, that it, it is a we thing, that he has given us not only himself, but he's given us each other. And we believe that it leads to life-changing relationship, which is a core value we're going to cover today, that when our lives have been intersected with Jesus, when our lives get impacted by him, truly receptive of the grace and mercy that was evident in him, we will be forever changed. And the relationships around us will just be manifestation. It'll be an outpouring in the lives that are closest to us, our friends, our family. It's going to be an outpouring of that intimacy that he had and poured into us. There's another way I would say it. I would say it, it kind of manifests itself like this. How many, of you, how many of you have ever imagined yourself the guilty man on death row? I want you to right now. Imagine that we are the guilty party condemned for murder sitting in a cell on death row awaiting our end. But in the cell nearest us, there is a man who's been wrongly accused. He's placed in jail on false pretenses, serving a sentence that he himself didn't earn. Our parole hearing is coming, and we intend to walk in and attend that meeting, pleading with the judge for a lesser sentence, maybe that we might go free. And before we can enter the room and say a word, our parole hearing comes up, we intend to plead with the judge, only to be made aware that we've been, re we've been awarded complete pardon, a free and full pardon, that we are actually leaving the room to leave. Before we can say a word, because our innocent neighbor went in just before us, pleaded on our behalf and begged for full punishment to be placed upon him for us to be released to go free. You see, this is the gospel at its heart, at its root. And we cannot help but have our lives changed when we hear that truth, we recognize that truth, we grasp it and embrace it. We become new people. Living more out of the love and grace that was bestowed to us, that was gifted to us, rather, rather than a people entitled, fighting for significance or a throne that we never deserved. And, and then out of that intimacy and that significance, that love, that freedom, we start to offer to other people. We start to be gracious with other people, ever aware of the death that we truly deserved or the love that pursues us even when we keep it at bay. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? How many of you have kept the Lord at bay at times? How many of you have received full pardon and you've 
not every day gotten up with a gratitude for that. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says this from verse 16, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning to others, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us a message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are we hearing this? Are we hear this? This is the start of what leads to life-changing relationship. It means new life. It means a new life, a new mission, one that seeks because we've been reconciled to reconcile others, and that they would know a true love that goes beyond the one that we can produce, one that's finite, has conditions. It is an unconditional love, one that receives people just as they are. It's one that goes beyond an old life that's rooted in self-righteousness and, listen, the pursuit of more. You see, this, this example, this life change, this new life versus an old life is best manifest to me in a narrative found in 1 Samuel. It's, it starts uh, early before 1 Samuel 13, but it really comes to a head in 1 Samuel 18. Today, I just want to take a, a minute and look at like nine verses of where we see the way that people respond. We can either respond today in one of two ways to what God is doing. We can either respond and fight for our own throne, white knuckling it with our own worry and our anxiety, or we can respond to the Lord by relinquishing our control to Him, trusting Him, trusting that love is the, is the man that we never pursued lurking in the shadows, but that could not take His eyes off of us. First Samuel 18 says it like this, After David had finished walking with, talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. What's happening here? Let me just, let me just tell you right now. The first king of Israel was Saul. People begged for a king. God told them not to have a king, that I'm your king, and I'm going to show that to you in the Messiah. But they couldn't help it. They wanted to be like the people. They wanted a physical representation, a manifestation of that in human form. So Saul was raised up and became the king. Saul, in 1 Samuel 13, we'll get to it in a moment, loses his throne out of selfishness, out of arrogance, out of the lack of patience. And God selects for himself a man after his own heart, the second king of Israel, a man who doesn't fit the bill, doesn't fit the picture, a shepherd boy that's not a direct bloodline to the throne himself in David. Who is that direct bloodline? Who is that prince? Jonathan, the one we just read of, who we find will start to lay everything down at David's feet. It says in verse 5, whatever mission... Saul sent him on. David was so successful that Saul gave him rank high in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. So when the men were returning home from after David had killed the Philistines, 
the women came out from all the towns of Israel, met King Saul, and singing and dancing with joyful songs, timbrels and lyres. They danced and they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom itself? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Because at this point, Saul didn't know who his kingdom was being given to. So in this passage, we see two responses to David. Or let me say it better. We see two responses to what God is doing. And we get to choose, just like they did, how we ourselves will respond to what God is doing in and around us. Saul's response. Saul's response represents the old life we read about in 2 Corinthians 5. It represents a life that pursues more. And it's a life that pursues its own throne. It's a life that isolates others. Rather than embracing life-changing relationship, it thinks only of itself. And so... Our old response to things before salvation in Jesus, this is the only way we knew. In a, in a message and in a world where we are taught by culture, it's all about who? Me? It's all about me? No, who's, it, who's it about? It's all about you, right? It's all, it's all about us individually. Just do it. If you want to go to Burger King, you can what? Have it your way. That's right. It's all about you. And so you are pursuing a throne where people are subservient to you and do everything the way that you will and desire. We respond, Saul responds like this because he's been given a throne in his own mind, in his own heart. He's physically been on the throne. And if you know anything about King Saul, I, I encourage you to go back and read it. Everywhere that he went, the Lord was with him, blessed him. There was, he could do no wrong. He was just favored until 1 Samuel 13. Everything he did touched the gold until 1 Samuel 13. And in 1 Samuel 13, he gets, he gets hit. In verses specifically 11 through 14, he is trapped. There's a battle that he can't win. He's losing people and he is nervous. He's not, he's, he wants to call upon the name of the Lord. There's one thing that is not reserved for the king to do. The king can do anything that he desires except one thing. The one thing that is reserved from the king, it's the one thing that would cause him harm, is that he has to trust the priests around him to offer sacrifice to the Lord for him as intercession. That the king cannot go directly to the Lord on his own like that for the people. That is reserved for the priests. So he has to wait on Samuel to come to him. Samuel's taking his time. And Saul grows impatient. Doesn't want to be told what to do, what not to do. I'm the king. And in his own mind, in a moment of arrogance and ignorance, he offers sacrifice to the people, to God, to God for the people, in hopes that he'll evoke the Spirit of God to protect them. When Samuel shows, he looks at him and says, what, what have you done? You disobeyed the one thing that you weren't allowed to do. And now it says in Scripture there in 1 Samuel 13 that God would have established his his throne, your kingdom forever with you. But now, now you've lost the kingdom. You couldn't obey the one thing you were reserved to not do and you disobeyed it. So you've lost the throne. God has already selected, anointed, and raised up another king, a king after his own heart to take your place. And that is found and embodied in the person of David. 
So he says, you've lost the throne. Let me ask you a question. Saul is king in his own mind. It's evident in the practice around him. He runs the kingdom. But how many of you have ever become king of your own existence? How many of you have ever thought yourself a little bigger than you should have, ever had a moment of haughtiness and just made a mistake, said something you wish you hadn't? Look at your spouse. Wish you could get it back, but damage is done. And you're going to pay for that one. You see, here's the truth. Saul has a moment here where he can wait upon the Lord, which we are told repeatedly in Scripture to let God be God. And he can turn and embrace the lover of his souls like that schoolgirl that we all are, like that guilty inmate that we all were, like Jonathan does. Or we can respond like his father Saul does. In 1 Samuel 18, verses 14 and 15, as he sees that he has lost the kingdom out of his own hand, he's the one that lost it. He let loose of it because of his arrogance. It shows that he himself grows jealous. In verse 14, it says, In everything he did, he had great success, speaking of David, knowing that the favor had been transferred to David, because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. Unwilling to accept personal responsibility, not accepting the redirection of God's plan here, Saul grows jealous of David, angry, greedy, and grasps for his throne that he himself has lost, white-knuckling his power. God has ripped it from him, though he clings at it with everything that he has. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anyone ever had this happen in your life? When we worship ourselves, our goal is more. Always. It has to be. Saul here didn't want to be told no or they had to wait. He wanted the move of God, he wanted the favor of God, wanted it right now, and because he's king, he was entitled to it and deserved it. When we worship ourselves, our goal is more. It always is. When our goal in life is more, it gives birth to two things in our lives, fear and worry. When your goal in life is more significance, more security, more satisfaction, and when you are in control of your, all these things in your life, you are going to worry. And you should. You should worry if you are actually in control of all those things. This is too many of us today. People that claim Jesus yet are still viciously pursuing more as we did prior to salvation, as if nothing in our lives has changed with the encounter that we had with Jesus. Jesus tells us to be anxious for nothing in Matthew 6, in a dissertation that became one of his most famous sermons. But yet, we worry. I want to encourage you. He gives this sermon away in the first century under Roman rule, where the poor are incredibly poor. What he's saying here in a moment, I'll read it to you, to all of his disciples who have left everything to follow him, is take nothing with you, depend on me. Do you know why he said that to them? For two reasons. He wanted them completely devoted to him, number one, but number two. It was incredibly common during that day for people to go out and be robbed. If you're walking along the road and you got big money belts, a big money pouch that you're carrying, you are going to be robbed. Hence the Good Samaritan story. Look it up. He's telling me, I don't want you to worry about the stuff. I don't want you to walk around and be a target. 
So I want you to walk with me. And so in Matthew 6, verse 19, it says, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I said that he asks for their devotion and leave everything behind to follow him because they, he wants to be the object of their affection. He wants them to depend completely on him. Here's a hard saying, but we've got to say it. Here it is. If our pursuit is more, then that's our treasure. And if that is our treasure, then he is not. I didn't say it. If your, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If your heart is after more, then it is not after Jesus. Jesus said that, not me. Do not shoot the messenger here. I am wrestling with this violently myself to the point where I've experienced like deep hurt and pain and depression over this thought. I'm just confessing that to you. I don't know why I'm confessing it to you, but I am. Here's the reality. No one can serve two masters. Verse 24. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you eat or drink, about your body, what you wear, is not life more than food and your body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can anyone, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Then why worry about clothes? You see, we want life change and we want it, but believe that worry is our vehicle to life change. And we're deceived. We're deceived to believe that we can actually worry ourselves and will it into change. The things that we desire, if we just worry enough about it, it'll actually happen. And here he says, you can't change a thing. Like, your worry literally is exhausted energy. Research shows us today that 85% of all that we worry about, listen to this, doesn't even happen. 85% of that which you and I spend our time exhausting energy on in worry and anxiety won't even come true. And the other 15%, we watch people walk through it all the time, and guess what? They're fine. They come out on the other end, and they make it. With the Lord's grace and help, they're good. That's what he's saying here. Don't worry about it. Look, he's talking to a people that, like, during the first century, listen, this is amazing. During the first century, you know they didn't have refrigerators? You know what else they didn't have? Common things that we take for granted all the time. Common luxuries didn't exist in their day. If you were poor, and they were poor, if you were poor in their day, guess what? If you couldn't find what you needed, you died. So it was a legitimate concern. Like, it's legitimate. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, don't worry about any of that. I've got you. But then today, in our world, we have all these conveniences. We have all these common conveniences. In fact, we have so many fail-safes in place. Like, if you can't feed yourself, the government will feed you. And if you can't trust the government, you have ministries that you can turn to, churches that'll do it. There are 
soup kitchens everywhere. Like we have fail-safes in place to feed ourselves. And guess what? We are the most anxious generation to date. And that's what happens. That's what happens when you give your life to comfort and you become comfortable. You become the most worried generation the world has seen. You become anxious because when something happens, you don't know how to face it. When trouble comes, you're not sure how you're going to navigate it. With all our fail-safes today, and how many of you just acknowledge there are a lot? You're awake in the world today. We worry. (laughs) And you know what worry is? Worry is your white knuckles grabbed around your throne for yourself. Worry and anxiety is you trying to determine where things are going for you in a way that you want them to go for you. And it is your white knuckling, the throne that Saul was trying to white knuckle just like him. We worry and white knuckle a throne that was never intended to be ours. And all the while, because we are evading the guy in the shadows and hearing of his love and who he is and what, the way he pursues us, the way he stalks us, the way he desires us, because we won't turn and embrace that, we worry. But if we would just allow ourselves to embrace his love, let the words that he took time to pour over methodically, intentionally, minister to us about how he desired for us to be his, we might, listen, we might worry less. And you say, well, I don't actually worry about me, Justin. You know, the Bible says, think about the needs of others. So I do that. I worry about my kids. And I worry about my friends or my, my family. I worry because I'm so godly about other people. As if you are in control of their significance. Their security, their satisfaction, as if you are in control of it. You can control theirs as much as you can control your own. And by the way, he loves them more than you've ever thought to, ever dreamt. And so he's been lurking in the shadows, waiting for them to turn and face him, to embrace him, to hear of his love, to trust it. But Listen, the more you're in the way, the harder that becomes. And the more you stay in the way for yourself, giving him a stiff arm, the less you see just how loved you are. When you are in control of your own significance, your security, your satisfaction, you should be worried. I am incredibly aware of how incompetent I am. Who else? When you are the person that is to hold up these things, when my own security, my own significance, my own satisfaction are entirely dependent on my own imperfect person that I'm very familiar with, rather than the sovereign and perfect God that loves me personally, unconditionally, and has been pursuing me, then I should be incredibly worried. If I'm not going to trust him, then I have every right to be anxious. But here's the thing. We're talking about life change. And so in order for your life to change, we can't respond to him and what God is doing in and through our lives the way that Saul does, white-knuckling our throne by worry or anxiety. We have to let go. We have to let our lives show change because we're more devoted to Jesus and his presence than we are worried about our own stuff and status. 
When we fight for our own kingdom, we isolate, we isolate ourselves from others. That, so the core value of life-changing relationship becomes null and void. But listen to this. When we collaborate in, with God in establishing his kingdom, we welcome and anticipate life change with other people. Back to 2 Corinthians 5. It says, therefore, if anyone in Christ, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that other people might see it, that other people might benefit from him loving us. And our embrace of that love is what extends grace and mercy and love to them. Thus, Jonathan's response. Jonathan's response represents new life. It represents God's presence and our desire for it and the collaboration with him and his plan over our own. It's the beckoning and relinquishing of our own agenda to embrace his. See, Jonathan is more concerned about collaborating with God than fighting with man. And Jonathan understands because God fights for him and has shown that. He's embraced God's pursuit of him. He knows the goodness of God's love and desires to stay in it. That others have it as well when he trusts and embraces it. He understands that he works for and unto God, the true king, and not for a human representation therein. Colossians 3 says this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working unto the Lord, not for human masters, since you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Here's what he understands. How many of you have... <laughs> I get nervous to ask this question. How many of you have a terrible boss? If they're in this room, do not raise your hand. Okay? All right? So here's the thing. You don't work for them. Colossians 3 is true. You don't work for them. Everything you do is worship unto the Lord. And Jonathan understood that. That's why Jonathan was able to relinquish. Here's what happens. Uh, in, in this passage, we see that Jonathan takes off his robe or his mantle and he places it around David. He takes off his tunic, his coat, puts it on David. He's putting the royal colors on David. What that means is this had legal ramifications. Anytime it was rare, this whole picture is incredibly rare, that someone would pass their right to the throne to someone else willingly. But he sees that God's anointing and favors on David. This guy slayed a giant as a teenager. It's with him. So I just want to serve and join God in what he's doing. I want to collaborate in what God's doing to bring about his kingdom, not my own. And so he puts his royal colors on David, abdicating the throne. It was rare, but when you had royalty divorce in that day, it was said that the child who decided to go with the, the spouse, the parent that was leaving, was expected to take their robe off and leave it either at the footstool of their throne or the doorstep of the castle thus abdicating any right to the throne willingly. That's what, that's what Jonathan is doing here. When it says he takes off his weapons, hands them to David, he's saying, look, these belong to the leader of the military of Israel, and that's not me. That's you. I'll get my own. I just want to serve well in your kingdom, my master. Jonathan is functionally bowing in allegiance to David, not because he's solely giving himself to David's kingdom, he loves David deeply. It's his best friend. He makes a covenant with him. It says he loves him as himself, but he does it because he knows the love, the power, and the presence of God, and he serves David out of allegiance to God's kingdom first. Two, he's working for is God. He's collaborating with him. This is his primary motivation, to collaborate with the true king, the creator and sovereign over the universe. At the beginning of this series, I challenged to grow by 20% over the course of the next 
year in each of these areas that we're discovering as core value. But here's the thing. I actually hesitate a little bit because I know our tendency to not do what's wrong and to do what's right and to make it obligatory. And obligatory relationships never work. But here's the truth. In the most conservative of research, what we're finding is this. That there is 20% new information coming out every single year in every field of study. So it doesn't matter what your job is, what your career is, there's at least 20% new information that's coming out every single year. So if you're not reading, if you're not training, if you're not learning from the best in your field, you are actually falling behind. In fact, in five years, you'll be obsolete in your field of study. Most conservative figures, I think that's actually a higher percentage. So why do I say grow by 20%? Because we don't need to be obsolete for the kingdom. Where do we need to change? I believe we can change by worrying less and by engaging instead of being lazy and expecting it just to happen. This is not an obligatory list. Here's places where I believe that we can actually develop in his presence more and become a lot more like Jonathan and have a response that looks like his versus Saul's. Here it is. I'm going to make it quick. Number one, you have to increase your time with the Lord. Maybe you've heard this before, but here's the thing. How are you to ever know what he desires if you're not present with him, carving out space for him to be in his presence, to allow yourself, listen, to know that he already smiles upon you. He's the guy lurking, looking at his lover, the one that he desires. You're not doing anything to earn his smile. He already smiles over you. Number two, you have to increase your talks with the Lord. This is prayer. This is important. You might be saying right here, okay, I'm done. Justin, you're saying read your Bible, say your prayers. No, listen, here it is. I'm not giving you obligatory lists. I'm saying that if your communication with him is not intimate, then your relationship and communication with others will suffer. It's evident in the relationships around you. If you are terrible at communication with those around you, it's because you're trying to do it in your own strength. You have to develop your relationship by talking with him. Every relationship depends on that. Thirdly, you have to increase your teachability. We have to come to the place where we increase our trust of him, that he has a plan and his way is better than my plan. I'm not going to white knuckle my throne. I'm going to relinquish it like Jonathan did. I'm not grasping at something that I have already lost. In losing, I gained eternity. Anyone who holds his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find life eternal. I have to be willing to be teachable. I have to recognize that my life is about collaboration with him and bringing about his kingdom. That's the change. Not worrying about the significance that I have. All of that is in his control. So here we go as we, clo- as we close. Listen, when your life changes because of Jesus, you're going to stop fighting for a throne and you're just going to want his presence. When your life intersects with the one leaking, lurking in the shadows that pursued you and has never stopped pursuing you. You learn that. You see that. Your life will change. Saul fought for his throne and didn't let go. We can fight for our own throne by worrying and trying to grab at our life and not being willing to let God have his way. We can still fight it. But I encourage us, if we want to have a life-changing relationship and that be manifest in all our relationships around us, then we have to stop fighting the Lord and allow him in. Receive it. Allow his love to actually change us so that everything around us changes. Jonathan fought for the presence of God, and that is the thing most important for us. Jonathan found his significance, his security, and his satisfaction, and the Lord's love for him. 
have you and I. See, Saul exhausted himself trying to create or control things for himself, trying to grasp at what he had already lost. This morning, what will you and I choose? What will you choose today? Which one? Will we be like Saul? Will our life change because of Jesus be evident in ours because we chose to be like Jonathan? Father, we love you and we thank you so much because you loved us. And this morning, in a day where we are told to fight for you and make it all about you and don't let people disrespect you and worry about the security of yourself and those around you, Jesus, may we become a people more concerned, more focused on the fact that you control our significance, our satisfaction. You are in control of our security. And this morning, place our hope and trust in the one who was pursuing us before we even knew his name. Have your way with us right now in this moment, Jesus, I pray. Amen.